I'd like to address a subject this afternoon in the sermon that I hope will be informative. Some aspects may be a bit sobering and shocking, but my goal is that I hope that I can cause each and every one of us to think seriously and to think deeply about why we're here. I'd like us to ask ourselves as we go through the sermon, will I be here in a couple of months? Will I be here in a year or two or three from now? And where will I be and what will I be doing when Jesus Christ returns? I'd like you to think about some of these things. For the last several weeks, I've been mulling over some ideas for the sermon today. The ideas were basically along the same line. But in traveling out to Oklahoma last week, I took a book along that I keep a number of books with interesting titles beside my uh, chair at home where I do some reading. I picked this up, put the book in my briefcase, and started reading it on the plane. And as I was reading, these ideas that had been floating around in my mind began to gel and come together. Because one of the early sentences in the book read this way, What does it mean to be a Christian amidst the ruins of 21st century Christendom? What does it mean to be a Christian today? in the Western world, where the Christianity of this world is crumbling and coming apart. What does it mean to be a Christian today? This is really a two-part statement in the book. The first one is, what does it mean to be a Christian? And the second part of this statement is talking about the ruins of Christianity today, the ruins of 21st century Christendom. I'd like you to think about these things because how we understand these two comments, these two statements, these two phrases, what does it mean to become a Christian and the ruins of modern Christianity? Because how we understand those two phrases could determine where we're going to be in six months, where we're going to be in a couple of years, where we'll be and what we're going to be doing when Jesus Christ returns to this earth. I've entitled the sermon, The Challenge of Being a Christian Today. The Challenge of Being a Christian Today. In an environment where Christian beliefs are being challenged, questioned, ridiculed, and attacked. I'd like you to think about how are you managing today as a Christian? How will you manage in the years just ahead? What are some of the challenges that we face today? And what are the challenges that are coming down the road in the next several months, the next several years? Are we prepared for these challenges? What are we doing to prepare? What could we be doing to prepare for the challenges that are just ahead? To begin, I'd like to ask some questions. What are some of the challenges facing Christians today 
amidst the ruins of 21st century Christianity. Now, for those of us here in Charlotte, this this may be kind of hard to get our minds wrapped around. Because I drive into work and I drive by several huge churches. Big, impressive buildings, huge parking lots, congregations that number in the thousands. We've got Christian broadcasting facilities here in Charlotte. We've got Christian hospitals, not only here in Charlotte, but scattered especially through the South. Methodist hospitals, Baptist hospitals, Adventist hospitals, Roman Catholic hospitals. Billy Graham just lives up the road a ways. It's hard for us, I think, living here in the Bible Belt to consider Christianity coming apart, Christianity being in ruins, because the evidence around us doesn't say that until you back off a little bit and look at a bigger picture, what's happening in our country, what's happening in Canada, what's happening in Europe, what's happening in Australia and New Zealand, some of these places. And the statistics don't lie. Over the last 30 or 40 years, mainline denominations have been hemorrhaging members. Hemorrhaging members. They've been leaving in hundreds and thousands. They're not staying with mainline denominations. Baptists, Methodists, and other big denominations. People are leaving. Some other interesting statistics that the number of people that are unaffiliated, I don't belong to any church, but I'm religious. That number has also been increasing. The number of people that declare on census forms, I don't have any religion. I'm not religious at all. That number has also been increasing. In a country that says, in God we trust. This is what's happening in the churches in America, in Western Europe, and some of the other places around the world. Another trend has developed over the last, actually, 60 or 70 years. And this is the spread of either secular humanism or just plain humanism. That sounds like a big philosophical term, but what it means is humanism basically believes or suggests that there is no God. There's no God. There's no supernatural. There is no right or wrong. We're the products of evolution. The Bible is a bunch of myths. There is no purpose for human life. This idea has spread over the last 40, 50, 60 years, and more and more people are buying into it. So this idea has spread. And then people are also taking that idea and running with it. I was watching some videos on the Internet the other day where they were interviewing a lady who represents an organization that is against circumcision for boys. Because a statistic came out that the number of circumcisions in America are dropping drastically. And this lady was saying, people are getting our message. And she was saying, this is a brutal thing. It should never be done. He said, we are going to change things. 
And this woman and some of her colleagues appeared before the Massachusetts state legislator wanting to introduce a bill that if any parent circumcises their child, they will need to serve 14 years in prison. Shocking, isn't it? Fox News interviewed this woman on one side of a table and interviewed a Jewish doctor on the other side of the table. And they had very divergent views. The woman was not interested in what the doctor had to say. But she was interested in, in verbalizing her mission. I mean, you could just see this in her eyes. She had to eliminate this barbaric practice. And they confuse male circumcision with female circumcisions practiced in some countries. One is total mutilation. The other is not. They're not equivocal. They, they don't equal each other. But this was lost in this discussion, even on the commentator. But these are things that are coming. I watched another video by a woman lawyer from Georgetown University. And she was talking about what we need to do to promote uh, same-sex marriages is to begin letting people know that gay sex is morally good. Morally good. And then she gave her reasoning. She says intimate relationships are important for the family stability. And since two men or two women create a family, therefore, they need to have intimate relationships so their family can be stable. So our our, our society can be stable. Therefore, we have to promote this idea that gay sex is morally good. And she was vehement about those things, very intelligent person. The, the words came very easy, but she's writing bills and doing all kinds of things. And again, people that oppose these things are going to be threatened with jail sentences. This is what's coming. You may have seen also in the news recently that the Prime Minister of Iceland, who's a woman, married her longtime lesbian lover. The first head of state in the world to do something like that. Argentina became the first country in the world to justify these relationships. And this is the direction that things are going in the world. You know, once Christian values are being thrown out the window, and we could get down a whole series of things. You know, 10, 20 years ago or so, they outlawed prayer in public schools in America. And then they outlined putting the Ten Commandments in public buildings. People have been fired, teachers have been fired for reading the Bible or expressing their Christian beliefs in schoolrooms. This is what's coming. We're talking about the crumbling of Christian values in the Western world. Along with this, there's been a rise in neo-paganism. Where witches are in classes, Wiccans, as they're called. Dr. Germano was mentioning recently teaching a sociology class at a junior college here in North Carolina. He's about 20 witches in my class. <laughs> in America. When I was living in England, England was considered the uh, 
the, the, the witch's capital of Europe. Over there on the summer solstice, don't get anywhere near Stonehenge. Because these people are down there having a big party, uh, beating on their drums and walking around with uh, wreaths of uh, mistletoe on their heads. My wife and I were over there about a year ago, and we stayed uh, right near Glastonbury. It was a, a mound. And the legends are that Joseph of Arimathea may have come to that area, possibly Jesus Christ. But the lady running the bed and breakfast says, are you going to be here Friday night? I said, what's Friday night? It's going to be a big Druid festival up on the hill. <laughs> so they're going to be beating drums and walking up there. It's going to be really wild. I said, I don't think we'll be here. Oh, you're going to really miss something. I said, I'm sure I will. <laughs> But more and more people are attracted to these things, doing these things. These are pagan practices that are coming alive today. So these are some of the challenges facing Christians today, but they're only going to become even greater in the months and in the years just ahead. And my question to you would be, will you continue to be a Christian? Do you have the courage to continue to be a Christian? Or will you begin to compromise and say, well, it's really not that important. You know, it, whatever anybody wants to do, that's fine. Will you be influenced by what's happening in the world? I think we ought, we ought to ask one other question. Why are these things happening today? Why are people leaving churches today? Why are people turning off towards religion today, especially the Christian religion? Why are people disassociating with churches but still claiming to be religious? What's happening? What's going on? When you read books and articles written about this phenomenon, what's happening, they basically say that Christians today have no compelling message. They have no compelling message. Why should I be a Christian? Why should I go to church? They have no sense of mission and no sense of purpose. I'm talking about real purposes, motivating purposes. I remember reading an article in Christianity Today magazine several years ago, and it was kind of a discussion between evangelical Christians about evangelism. Should they be doing it? What should they be doing? And one of the statements by one of the persons was quite, <laughs> it blew me away. He said, what would we say if we went on television? Besides, Jesus loves you and have a nice day. No mission, no sense of purpose. It's no wonder people are leaving and walking out the door. An interesting article in... Uh, the Charlotte Observer, <clears throat> I think it was last week, it was entitled, Christianity is Losing Believers. Losing Believers. They're walking out the door. Even people that had been away from church come back and sit in church for a while, and then they walk out the door. And one of the reasons mentioned in this article that they are leaving uh, churches and kind of going off on their own is, they said, because of all the hypocrisy we see at church. People that claim to be Christians, but they don't live 
as Christians. And the article was mentioning that, uh, and these are some of the statistics from this Barna organization. The Barna group has found that born-again Christians are more likely to divorce than atheists or agnostics. It said evangelical adolescents overwhelmingly say they believe in abstaining from premarital sex, yet they're more likely to be active sexually and at an earlier age than their peers in mainline Protestant, Mormon, and other churches. In other words, people that claim to be Christians, but people look into the Bible and realize you're not. You're not living up to the claims that you're making. And they could go on with that, that some people claim to be Christians, but they, they don't treat other people like Christians. So people are turning off and leaving. They're going elsewhere. Why are people leaving religion altogether? I think one of the reasons there is that they, they, they don't get any real answers from their preachers to really important questions. What's the purpose of life? Go to heaven, or I don't know, or you'll find out what God's will is down the road one of these days. Are we here by evolution? Well, we're not sure. Is the Bible inspired? Well, maybe. The lack of convincing answers. And this tends to be more on the humorous side, but this was something on the, the Internet showing the disillusionment of Christians. It mentions, this was a church bulletin board. It said, evening activities in the parish hall, beginning at 7 o'clock. On Monday night, we'll have a meeting for Alcoholics Anonymous. On Tuesday night, we'll have a meeting for abused spouses. On Wednesday night, we're going to have a meeting for people with eating disorders. On Thursday night, we're going to have a meeting talking about saying no to drugs. On Friday night, we're going to be talking about teen suicide watch. On Saturday, we'll have a soup kitchen. And on Sunday, the sermon will be America's Joyous Future. <laughs> you know, most people today approach the church as a social activity area or a hospital. But that's not the perception you get when you read the Scriptures. And Paul talks about putting on the... Uh, the whole armor of salvation. I've never seen a surgeon dressed that way. <laughs> you know, with a helmet and a sword and a shield. Paul talks about before he dies, he said, I have fought a good fight. And I've finished my race. Those are the analogies that he uses. It's not a hospital. Now, we're here to help people, but we also have a mission to perform. A powerful mission to perform. A motivating mission. But these are some of the reasons why people are leaving with this humanistic, uh, secular humanism idea. You might get on the Internet, look up human, human uh, what is it, the humanist, humanist manifesto. These were some academics got together in 1933 and wrote a manifesto. They said, we believe we evolved. We were not created. We believe that we will solve all of our problems. We don't need God. And then this has been revised several times. If you've heard the uh, film by, or the, the song by John Lennon, Imagine. Imagine this new world coming with no religion. With no religion. This is what these humanists were talking about. We don't need religion. It's all passe. We don't need it. We've outgrown religion. We've outgrown the need for a God. 
So these are some of the ideas floating around today. We live in what are called cultural wars today. Where people who don't like the Bible, who don't believe in God, want to force their ideas on people that do believe in God. And that do believe the Bible is inspired. And this is what we're watching today in the courts. We're watching this in schools. If you're sending your kids to public school or thinking about that, I think you're really going to be rethinking some of those things, especially over the next several years. Because your kids are going to be exposed to these ideas that homosexuality is an alternate lifestyle. It's just whatever you want to do. There's nothing wrong with it. It's actually morally good because it helps maintain families in our society. Of course, we've redefined what family is. This is what's coming. This is what's coming. So I want to ask then for the remainder of the sermon, how will these challenges affect you and your children? How will it affect you as a young person growing up? How will it affect you as a grandparent? What will you encourage or discourage in your children and grandchildren? How are these things going to affect other Christians? I was in a swimming pool where we lived last night. A gentleman was there. He knew I was a minister. And I got in the pool and he said, I want to talk to you. <laughs> he said, I want to find out about your job, your, your, your church and your religion. He had a brother and a father and some aunts and uncles or whatever, not aunts, but uncles, that were all ministers. So he was curious. He wanted to find out about some things. So I started telling him what I did. I traveled and gave some lectures, and I'm teaching and doing a number of things like that. And I said I was giving some lectures on what's ahead for America, Bible prophecy. He said, well, I've always been interested in, in clairvoyance. He <laughs> said, I've been reading Edgar Case. He's really interesting. And I, I didn't bite. I just listened. And I mentioned that uh, we use the Bible, not Edgar Case or Casey, whatever his name is. But we started talking. I said, you know, he was wanting to know what I talk about. I said, well, we're talking about the direction our society is going and about the legitimization of same-sex marriages and things like that. And I could see his, his face was getting real serious. I said, I hope I'm not depressing you. He said, no. He said, a lot of people are worried about these things. A lot of people are worried about these things. But he didn't have any answers. But God has given us answers in the Scriptures that I hope we can appreciate. But here's a guy that uh, I think he views himself as a Christian. But he has no idea what's coming. Has no understanding of Bible prophecy, unfortunately. But he was interested. And as uh, he was leaving the pool, he came over and he said, he said I will pray for you. <laughs> that you will have the courage to continue doing what you're doing. So he identified where we were coming from. He didn't understand it fully. But he was concerned about what he sees coming. How are these changes going to impact these people? They're going to see our country going in a direction that 50 years ago we would have never believed it if somebody had told us those things. So let's look at the second phrase in this statement that I read at the very beginning. How can you be a Christian? What's it like to be? What does it mean to be a Christian? 
amidst the ruins of 21st century Christianity that we've been talking about. It might be good to define what is a Christian. I did this on the internet the other night. Just punch in Christian. And some of the definitions blew me away. I mean, they were fuzzy. Now, if we've got fuzzy ideas in our mind, we're not going to make it through some of the challenges coming down the road. We need to have a very clear understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Some people think that a Christian is a person that belongs to a church. A person who has been baptized. A person who has been born again. A person who has been saved. I've used this example before. My parents used to go to Bible studies and church services, and I think I was about six or seven years old. We were at a Bible study, and this big guy came over and looked down at me, and said, oh, Sonny, are you saved? I looked up at him and said, I don't know, I think so. <laughs> because I came to church, and I'd been baptized as a little kid, and I, I believed in God. And I, I thought I was saved, but I didn't know for sure. But he's asking me this question, and it was pretty heavy for me whenever I was six years old. <laughs> Today, I'd have a much more confident answer. But, you know, we learn as we grow. A person that believes in Jesus, now that's a little bit closer. But, you know, I was reading one of the books I was going through last week where a Muslim lady came up to a preacher and he said, do you believe in Jesus? And she said, well, I believe Jesus is in all of us, Muslims and Christians and whatever. That's not what the Bible says. But that was her belief, and she was sincere, I'm sure. Other definitions of a Christian would be conservative Republicans. That's an assumption. <clears throat> Or people of European descent that persecuted the Jews and Muslims, the Crusaders. These are Christians. A person that follows the teachings, this, this was an interesting one. It said one definition is that uh, a Christian is a person who follows the teachings of Jesus. But there is great diversity uh, about what Jesus actually taught. We know what he said, but what did he really mean? So you're left with, what does that mean? Anyone who believes that he or she is a Christian is a Christian. But these are not biblical definitions. These are definitions that people have made up. Let's go to the Bible. <clears throat> Let's turn to Acts chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Let's run through some scriptures that talk about being a Christian. That talk about how the name is used. <clears throat> Acts chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. <clears throat> now Barnabas and Saul had gone to Antioch. And let's break, pick it up here in verse uh, 20. Verse 25 says, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, or Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many of people, or they gave instructions to a great number of people. 
and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So you got two words here. One is the disciples were called first called Christians in Antioch. You look up the word disciple, what does it mean? It means a student. That means a dedicated learner, someone who's following the teachings of, in this case, it was Jesus Christ. So a Christian is a person who follows the teachings of Jesus Christ. He's a student learning about the teachings of Jesus Christ. So here's how the Bible begins to define this term. What we need to ask next then is what did the disciples teach? What did Jesus teach? You know, Paul makes the statement in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, he says, follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. Follow me as I follow Jesus Christ, as I follow his example, as we will see, and as I follow his teachings. So as we follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, not just coming to church, and again, I'm preaching to the choir here, you're all in church. <laughs> but I think sometimes, even in the church of God, we can assume, well, I'm a Christian because I'm a member of the living church of God. But do we do the other things that Jesus said to do? Let's start in Matthew 4. And notice some of the teachings of Jesus Christ. As we go through these things, ask yourself, is this what I do? Is this my understanding? Is my understanding of being a Christian correct? Does it fit with the biblical descriptions of a Christian? Because these are the teachings of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 4, verse 4, Satan was tempting Christ. Starting in verse 3, he said, If you are the Son of God, Satan tempting Christ, command that these stones be, become bread. But he, Jesus, answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We're to live by the Scriptures. Not things that we make up, not traditions that are brought into the church, borrowed from paganism, but we're to live by every word, every teaching that comes from the mouth of God. In Matthew, excuse me, Matthew 4, verse 17, Jesus was preaching and says, He began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That word repent comes from the Greek, metnao, which means to turn with sorrow from a previous walk of life. I remember watching a Pat Boone film years ago about what it was like to become a Christian. And this young woman and her husband who had just become Christians made the comment, you know, being a Christian is just like having God in your back pocket. It's so wonderful. There was nothing about repentance. There was nothing about changing. There was nothing about giving up a former way of life and in moving in a totally different direction, but giving it up with sorrow. God, forgive me. I didn't understand. I didn't realize. Thank you for opening my mind. Help me to continue changing and growing so that I can be in your kingdom, that I can be one of your sons, one of your daughters. 
You don't hear a lot about repentance. I remember growing up, not growing up, when I was in graduate school in Mississippi. And I was listening to our broadcast, uh, Mr. Armstrong, uh, Ted Armstrong and some others on radio. But there were also other broadcasters both before and after the program. And one guy, I think his name was Jim, Billy James Hargis or somebody, God's man of faith and power! And he'd come on and yell and scream and carry on. And then some other ones that would go on. <laughs> but they had, they had a variety of messages. And I think it was at Oral Roberts that said, you know, reach out and grab your radio and, and make this contact. And all, things, all these wonderful things are going to happen to you. Nothing about repentance, nothing about changing. Just grab your radio <laughs> and connect. The Bible has a very different message. It says repent, change your life. Begin to think differently. Don't do what you used to be doing that are contrary to the teachings of God. But it says turn with sorrow from that former way of life. Some people do. Many people don't. Why did thousands of people leave the church of God when they'd come to understand the truth of God? One of the discussions we had in the Council of Elders one time, comment was made, I think we had a lot of baptized, unconverted people in the church. Baptized, but not really converted Mr. Armstrong used to say every once in a while, he said, I don't think most of you get it. I don't think most of you get it, he said. And I thought, boy, that's, that's really pretty harsh judgment. But where is everybody today? Why did people slide so easily back to Sunday and adapt to keeping Christmas again so easily? Adapting to not tithing, I can understand. <laughs> but then for people to come back, it's hard to start tithing again because they've learned to not set aside anything for God. But why would people leave the truth if they were deeply converted and just go back to the world? When somebody said, well, we have decided and God has led us to see and people just walked right along with it. As opposed to saying, who are you? And what does the book say? And are you teaching what's in the book? No. Jesus said, repent and change. Matthew 4, verse 19. Calling the disciples. Now, Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting their nets in the sea. For they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me. Follow my teachings. Follow my example. And I'm going to change your occupation. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Not fishers for fish, but fishers of men. You've got a bigger purpose in life. You've got a bigger mission in life. It has a spiritual dimension to it. It's not just physical. It says, then immediately they left their nets and followed him. So these were some of the basic teachings of Jesus Christ. Let's go to John 14, verse 6. <clears throat> Jesus was going over with his disciples the night before he was crucified. 
fundamental teachings of Christianity. Jesus said, uh, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. You've got people saying today, and I believe even the Pope says this, that if you're a good Muslim, you may go to heaven. If you're a good animist, you believe the spirits are in trees and rocks and things like that, you might be in heaven too. The Bible doesn't say that. Jesus said, I'm the way. Unless you follow my teachings, unless you believe that I am the Son of God, and repent and change, you don't have hope for eternal life. See, there is a way. A way. Not many ways. There is a way. Verse 15. Jesus said to his disciples, If you love me, Keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. And yet people are told that they will. You can't keep the commandments. You can't be perfect. Jesus kept those for you. So therefore, you don't have to. It's not what the book says. It's not what Jesus said. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. The Holy Spirit he's talking about that the world cannot receive. What does Acts 5.32 say? That God gives His Spirit to just everyone who asks for it. No, it says God gives His Spirit to those who obey Him, to those that keep the commandments. And you stop keeping the commandments, even if you've been baptized and have hands laid on you, you're going to lose God's Spirit. Then you'll lose the comprehension and the understanding that you once had. You know, I've talked to people, you've talked to people that were baptized, had hands laid on, sat in church for years. They stop keeping the commandments, start keeping Christmas, become wonderful Christians. And they don't have a clue to what's going on. They lose that comprehension. God's Spirit is dynamic. It flows back and forth. And unless we are nourishing that spirit, unless we're led by that spirit, we'll lose that spirit. When God gives us his spirit, we've got to nourish that spirit, be led by that spirit. We can't play games with that spirit. So Jesus is telling his disciples, and John mentions this later in 1 John chapter 1. You can just jot this in your notes. 1 John 1, 3 and 4, 1 John 5, 2 and 3. He says, if we love him, we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not a burden. They're not burdensome. And yet people are told today, you try and keep the Sabbath, you try and keep the holy days, you're putting this big burden on your shoulders. I remember kidding with our boys one time. I said, let's not go to the feast this year. Let's just keep Christmas. This is an experiment. Just let's do it once. And they said, Dad, you keep Christmas. (laughs) We're going to the feast. We get eight days, you get one. You lose, Dad. (laughs) They're not dumb. They know it was enjoyable to go to the feast. But Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Notice in Matthew 9, because we hear these comments today. Matthew 19. 
where this rich young lawyer comes to Jesus Christ and asks him a question. Verse 16 of Matthew 19. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good uh, teacher, what good thing should I do to have eternal life? What do I need to do to gain eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. But if you want to enter eternal life, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, as it mentions down in 23, if you want these things, keep the commandments. Same thing he said in John 14. And then this fellow was sharp. He said, Well, which ones? The Noatian commandments? The commandments God gave to Noah? Or the Ten Commandments that He gave to Moses? Or your commandments? Which ones do I keep? And Jesus pointed him right to the Ten Commandments. He said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. This is all right out of Exodus 20. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And if you do these things, you will love your neighbor as yourself. And if you look up Leviticus 19, verse 18, that comes straight from the Old Testament. About loving your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus points him right to these things. Well, there's nothing there about the Sabbath, some people will say. So this is apparently not binding on New Testament Christians. But Jesus said, follow me. Follow my example. Go to Luke 4, verse 16. What was Jesus' example? Luke 4, verse 16. So so when he came into Nazareth, that is Jesus Christ, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, as his habit was, some people say, well, that was just his custom. We don't need to follow his customs. But that's playing word games with the Scriptures. As his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And he read out of the book of Isaiah. So it was Christ's custom to keep the Sabbath. Notice in verse 31. Then he went down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. This is what Christ did on the Sabbaths. If you go to Acts chapter 17... Acts chapter 17, verse 1 and 2. Paul had made the statement in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Follow me as I follow Christ. We just read where it was Christ's custom to keep the Sabbath. In verse 2, verses 1 and 2 of Acts 17, it says, Now when they had passed through Amphiopolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was as he was in the habit of doing. He went into them for three Sabbaths and reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. So Christ kept the Sabbath as his custom, as his habit. That's what he was doing. He said, follow me. The Apostle Paul kept the Sabbath as his custom. The early church kept the Sabbath until it was changed later by people that became the Catholic Church. Jesus kept the holy days. John chapter 7 told his disciples, his brothers, you, you go up to the feast, I'm not coming up yet. <laughs> and they went up and spoke. So he was keeping the feast. First Corinthians 5, Paul talks about to the Gentiles in Corinth, let us keep the feast. Now what is that? <laughs> it's a holy day. 
You read in Zechariah 14, when Christ returns, his feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives. And the nation that doesn't go up to Jerusalem to keep the feast is not going to get any rain. Why? Because God wants to punish everybody? No. (laughs) He wants them to enjoy the feast and understand what God's plan and purpose is all about. Somehow this is lost on most people that claim to be Christians today. And again, I'm preaching to the choir. You know these things. But my point is, it's probably going to become more and more challenging to do these things without being persecuted. And do we have the courage, do we have the strength, do we understand what we need to be doing as Christians? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is talking about to his disciples the fundamentals, the basics of Christianity. This is what it's all about. Now, these are other qualities that we need to be focusing on besides keeping the Sabbath and keeping the holy days. In verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The word means humble. That regard themselves as insignificant. It was a joke that uh, I'd heard recently. I don't know whether I told it here or not, but this lady comes into church and she says to the usher, she said, uh, he said, can I help you find a seat? She says, uh, I'd like a seat on the front row. And the fellow kind of stumbles and he says, well, are you sure you want to be on the front row? The the pastor's kind of boring. And she said, uh, I'd like to be on the front row. Don't you know who I am? He said, no. He said, I'm the pastor's mother. (laughs) So he brought her up to the front row and he says, do you know who I am to the lady? She says, no. He said, that's good. And he left. (laughs) You know, sometimes we could regard ourselves as more important than we are. Don't you know who I am? You know, we used to have this phrase we use for super deacons. That uh, a little bit of authority goes a long way. We had some super elders, too. And we probably had some super members. (laughs) But, you know... Paul, or what Jesus is saying here is, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They're, they're humble. And it's not people who say, well, you know, I'm humble and I'm proud of it. <laughs> it's not that at all. <laughs> it's just regarding yourselves as insignificant. You know, with the attitude, I hope God can use me as long as He can use me. And if He has somebody else to use, that's fine. Blessed are those that mourn, people that care, people that are concerned about other people. You know, we can be praying for Mr. Rod McNair and the other gentleman that went with him from Kansas City as they get down to Haiti to look for ways that we can help those people down there. When things happen, do we care? Do we show concern? Do we have compassion? Can we empathize with people? You know, sometimes it's hard to empathize with someone that's in a situation that you haven't been close to. Well, I can't identify with that because I've never been there. Well, maybe try. Maybe try. Blessed are the meek. This is a teachable person. 
as opposed to, don't tell me. I've been in church for 30 years. You can't tell me anything I don't know. That's not a teachable attitude. You know, Moses was humble above all people, and yet Moses had been raised a prince in Egypt. He was probably a general in the Egyptian army. He was acquainted with logistics. He knew how to command and move people. He said he was humble above all people, Numbers 12. So we can be competent, but we can still be teachable and humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Psalm 119, verse 172 says, All thy commandments are righteousness. Do we really hunger? Do we want to live by the commandments of God? Do we take time to analyze and think about maybe Friday nights, Saturday mornings? Am I literally walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ? How can I do this better? And read through the Ten Commandments. Read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And kind of look in the mirror mentally while you're doing that. Am I teachable? Am I humble? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. How many opportunities do you have during the day to be merciful? And sometimes if we're in a position of authority... Get with it, bud. But can we be merciful and patient with people? Not everybody's perfect. We had a sign that we put on our boys' room when they were growing up. It was a little boy chewing on the corner of his blanket and looking up and said uh, basically the message to mom and dad, be patient with me because God's not finished with me yet. (laughs) God's not finished with any of us. He's molding and fashioning us. We grow at different rates. But this is one of the characteristics that God is looking for in future leaders in the kingdom of God that are merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Not always, I know there's a motive behind what he said. (laughs) You know, we've got to be careful with that because there's not always motives there. We've got to be street smart in a way. (laughs) But not always looking for the, the negative. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. How skilled are you at bringing peace between two people? Maybe between yourself and somebody else. It's a lot easier to say something and just let it go. And then people can scrape themselves off the wall later. See, Jesus Christ is looking for specific qualities. And these are qualities we can begin developing right now. Verse 13 says, you're the salt of the earth. You take a bite into a piece of meat or something that's salty, what do you do? Ow! Something there. I recognize there's something there. And God wants us to, (laughs) people to realize there's something there. I talked to this fellow in the swimming pool last night. He walked away and he realized, ooh, (laughs) there was something there in our conversation. It wasn't kind of, oh, it's so wonderful, you know, and all this mishy-washy stuff. Are you the salt of the earth? Are you the lights to the world? You know, some people are leaving churches today because of the hypocrisy that they see. The wrong kind of light. People claiming to be Christian and not living up to the name and their, con- their conclusion, I don't want any part of that. I don't want to be around people like that. So this is what Christ was teaching about. 
Verse 17 says, Think not that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill. Well, we understand Jesus fulfilled it, so we don't have to worry about it. It's not what the verse says. If you jot in your margin here, <clears throat> Isaiah 42.21, it's a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 42.21 said he would come and magnify the law, expand the law so that it covers even more things. And if you just read down through Matthew 5, he mentioned, you've heard it said, verse 21, of those of old that you should not murder. Verse 22, but I say, whoever is angry with his brother, without a cause, you just get fired up and let go with things. It's the same as murder. But there's a spiritual dimension, a mental dimension, not just the physical one. So he's amplifying the law. <clears throat> I'll let you read the rest of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, but these are instructions of Jesus Christ. These are goals that we should be striving for. And to read through and think about these things, kind of on a regular basis where we're analyzing, examining ourselves. Matthew 7, it talks about, Judge not that you be not judged. And yet I think because we understand that we're to keep the commandments. We tend to be kind of judgmental on people. Well, they're doing stuff on the Sabbath I would never do. Maybe they're not the same uh, spiritual maturity level that you are. I'd never let my hair get that long. My dress would never be that short. Yeah, we could go down the line. You know, I've used this example before. I had a young fellow who was attending university. He grew up in a church. He was about to graduate. He wanted to visit. Went into his apartment uh, where he was rooming with a couple of other guys, and I had to keep from looking at the walls because of the posters that were up there. And he said, you know, I think I want to come back to church. I'm graduating. I think I want to get back where I need to be. He had hair down to his Probably his waist. So I listened to him and I said, you know, you've grown up in a church, you want to come back. I said, you might want to get a haircut before you come. So he showed up on the Sabbath. He'd gotten a haircut. It only came down to here. <laughs> he walked in the door and there were two deacons on his tail. The moment he walked through the door, they came up to me. Who is that guy? Where did he come from? How did he get in here? This is a church. I said, guys, give him a break. He wants to come back to church. He did get a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, he'd probably get another one, but give him some space. You know, don't be so judgmental, so quick to pull the triggers. <sighs> they went back and did their thing, but... See, we're protecting the church, but we're scaring people away sometimes. Another example, years ago, <clears throat> guy wanted to, did come back to church, drove in the driveway, parked in the parking lot, met two of the parking people out there, and he said, we recognize you. What are you doing here? He looked at me and said, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm in the wrong place. And he turned around, went back out in his car and drove away. See, we can be judgmental as Christians. 
We have to make judgments really about ourselves, and it gives some people a little bit of space. <clears throat> got a fellow that showed up uh, in another part of the world where I was working, and he came to church in blue jeans, I think a work shirt, because that was all he had. I had mentioned to him, I said, generally people that come to church wear coats and ties. He knew that, but that was what he had. He came. Nobody said anything to him. About the third or fourth time he came, he had a suit and a tie. And we welcomed him each time. And so the point is, you know, Jesus, don't, don't be judging people. Now, we have to make judgments. We have to make decisions. But we've got to be careful about judging other people. <clears throat> Jesus makes a number of other comments <clears throat> about building on a rock not on sand. I think some of the reasons people left the church over the last 10 or 15 years, they never proved some things. They never really nailed down, do we really have to keep the Sabbath? What is the true gospel? Is there a God? Is the Bible inspired? Is there authority within the church? If we never nail these things down, we're going to get blown out of the saddle. It's just a matter of time. But Jesus is talking about building on a rock, not on the sand. <clears throat> What's interesting, I think, is the last couple of verses here in Matthew chapter 7. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at His teaching because He taught them as one having authority not as the scribes. Jesus didn't say, well, you know, we, we really hope the Bible's inspired. And we really, we really hope there is a God up there because we, we don't really know, but we're hoping. He didn't say that. He knew the Bible was inspired. He knew who He was. He knew what the truth was. He says, I'm the only mediator. My mom can't help you out. She's not a mediatrix. <laughs> he said, I'm the way, not all these other ways. And he didn't apologize for that, but he didn't ram it down people's throats either. He said, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. Matthew 20, Dr. Meredith has talked about this numerous times. <clears throat> This concept of servant leadership, beginning in verse 20 and going through 28. In verse 25, the disciples had been kind of jockeying. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Verse 25, Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, but this also happens in Israelite countries too, love to lord it over people. They like to be in charge and tell everybody else what to do. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, not among my disciples. I don't want to see this among my disciples. Whoever desires to be great among you, let him first be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, looking for ways to serve. Just as, again, follow me, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Jesus mentions in John 15, again, talking with his disciples the night before he was crucified, that God wants to see fruits in us. We break in here in verse 7 of John 15. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified. I think as Christians we all want to glorify God. And what we're told here is how to glorify God. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so you will be my disciples if you bear much fruit. Then in verse 10, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. As Christians, we need to practice loving each other. I think sometimes we, we endure each other. <laughs> We need to love each other, to get to know each other, be patient and understanding with each other, to appreciate each other. Because God is calling us out of all different walks of life, with different talents, different abilities, different experiences, because He is molding and fashioning a team. If we were choosing a team, we'd probably make different choices. (laughs) Wouldn't choose you, wouldn't choose you, wouldn't choose you. But God is the one that is chosen. And we've got to learn to work with the ones that God has chosen and be very grateful that we're part of the team because we might not have chosen ourselves (laughs) or somebody might not have chosen us. Our challenge is to learn to love each other, to get to know each other. Let's go to Galatians chapter 5 quickly and begin to wind this down. These are some of the fruits that God is looking for in us. Beginning verse 16, Paul is mentioning here to walk in the Spirit. In other words, be led by God's Spirit. And he talks about the works of the flesh. Now You can look at those on your own, but these are things we should not be doing, and yet sometimes we do. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, this is in a sexual sense, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, arguments, jealousies, so on, drunkenness. This happens every year at the feast from time to time. People go out, they drink too much, say things, do things that they feel sorry for later. But these are things we can't do if we claim to be Christians. Okay, the fruits that God is looking for, beginning in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. This is an unselfish, outgoing concern where we care for people. We're willing to sacrifice for people. Joy. Is being in the church a burden for you? Is going to the feast a burden for you? Is being loving a burden for you? I was kidding with a young man one time who came into the church. And he was always very serious. I said, you need to smile, be joyful. He said, it's hard to smile. (laughs) It's hard to smile. (laughs) Now, he had had a difficult life. But, you know, I saw him later and he had learned to smile. 
because things were going a little bit better. But you know, if we're always down and negative and we're representing the church, what church do you belong to? I, I'm not telling you. <laughs> what do you think about your church? I don't think about it. <laughs> Why would anybody want to come? But if they come in the door, people welcome them and it's warm and friendly and it's positive, they're going to want to be here. Joy, peace. Are you at peace with yourself? Sometimes one of the reasons it's hard to get along with other people, we're not at peace with ourselves. And yet if we can realize God has called us, God has forgiven us, God has been merciful to us, He's opened our minds to understand His truth, His plan, His purpose, if we're at peace with that, then that all things will work to the good for those that are called according to His purpose. Things get difficult for you, pray about it. Get on your knees. You'll get some advice. But let God work things out. You know, Do your part, but then let Him move the mountains. You work on moving the, pedal, the pebbles. Let Him move the really big things. But get, you know, be, strive to be at peace with yourself, at peace with God, and then being at peace with others is going to be a lot easier. Patience, long-suffering... You know, I saw this joke on the internet where these two buzzers were sitting on a telephone pole waiting for something to die. And said, I'm getting tired of being patient. Let's kill something. I'm hungry. <laughs> you know, being patient is hard sometimes. It's hard. You know, if you realize God's in charge, it's not going to be that hard. Because God will open the doors in His time and in His way. <clears throat> but these are the fruits that God is looking for. You know, if you're made a spirit being and made a king and a priest in the coming kingdom of God, somebody kind of pokes you in the eye and you're not patient, what are you going to do? Burn him with lightning? <laughs> He'll never do that again. <laughs> They didn't respect me. We're going to drop that city into a... a yeah, open up the ground and let them drop in. We'll let them know. But if we're patient, we say, well, let's give them another chance. I did this with one of my sons one time. Went to uh, it was a grocery store. And um, I gave one of the boys the cart to push around. I had the other boy I'm carrying. So you know who's who. <laughs> Anyways, the boy pushing the cart, I said, be careful, don't swing the cart back and forth. So he went up one aisle and I went up another one and I heard this crash and glass breaking. And I went back very quickly and here's this cart buried in a ketchup display at the end of the aisle. <laughs> ketchup all over the place, glass all over the place, and here's my son. <laughs> Looking around. I said, didn't I say something? Don't swing the cart. Yeah. The manager come running up. I said, how much is it going to cost me? He says, we have insurance. Don't worry about it. <clears throat> you know, so I didn't say anything. We went through the line, checked out, put our stuff in the car, drove home, emptied the car. Still didn't say anything. And we emptied the bags of groceries. I said to my son, would you come into the the family room, I want to talk to you. And he came in, he sat down, was very quiet. And I said, what 
should a father do when he gave his son instructions not to swing the cart? And he did. He looked up and he said, you could give him another chance. (laughs) I had to bite my tongue. Because he got me. (laughs) Talk about diplomacy. (laughs) But you know, sometimes we need to give people another chance. We appreciate it when we're given another chance. But brethren, these are some of the fruits that God is looking for in Christians. I want to mention another book that I don't recommend... But I do recommend. <clears throat> We've been going through biblical instructions of what it's like to be a Christian. I came across another book entitled The 77 Habits of Highly Ineffective Christians. <laughs> of Highly Ineffective Christians. And sometimes when we look at the mirror image <clears throat> of what we've been talking about, <clears throat> it's quite instructive. Let me just run through a couple of these quick. Said so you can be an ineffective Christian if you make tolerance for God. Well, I can tolerate God. By basing your faith solely on feelings and experiences. Well, I feel this is right. I don't need to prove it. <clears throat> you can be an ineffective Christian if you base, let's see, if you major in the minors, if you're thankless. I don't need to thank God for anything. If you live an unexamined life, you never bother to analyze what you're doing, why you're doing it. If you treat God like a pal, instead of like the Father and the God of the universe that He is. Uh, If you treat the Old Testament like a storybook, If you blame others for your problems instead of looking in the mirror. If you leave fasting to weird people and you don't fast. If you approach God only to get fixed, never to thank Him. If you live in the past or if you live totally in the future, we've got to function here and now. If you don't believe that Jesus is the only way to God, or if you live like a chameleon, I could read that. But what it's talking about is if you live one way, you come to church in your one way, but at home or on your job, you're something totally different. That's not an effective Christian. We need to be examining ourselves. We heard about that in the sermonette. <clears throat> we read about this on the Passover, First <clears throat> Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 31. Paul is saying, you know, examine yourselves before you take the Passover. Look at your life. Are you living according to the commandments of God? You know, we all need to do that. I can't do it for you. You can't do it for me. We've Got to do it individually. In Ephesians chapter 5, one of the scriptures we heard in the sermonette, maybe read verses 8 through 21, where Paul is talking about walking circumspectly. 
walking carefully, thinking about what you're doing. Am I really living as a Christian? Am I really setting a Christian example? You know, Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 6 that we're to come out of this world, verses 11 through 18, and be separate. We're to come out, live differently, to be unequally yoked. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. <clears throat> and in two scriptures, I would encourage you to look up and read in 2 Titus, or Titus chapter 2. It's about verses 14 and 15 where it talks about God has called us to be a special people. In the King James, it says a peculiar people. Now, in our terminology today, peculiar means weird. But the word actually means special, a special possession of God. A people that is very special to God. <clears throat> this is what God has called us to be. And you know, if if you start actually living by the commandments of God, you are going to stand out in this world. You are going to be different. You are going to be viewed as a peculiar people. In fact, that was actually the title of the book that I was reading on the airplane. A Peculiar People. What he's talking about is Christianity. <clears throat> when we live as Christians, we create a culture we create a culture that's very different from the culture of this world. You know, we don't swear, we don't steal, we don't kill, we don't commit adultery. We're merciful, we're gentle, we're patient, we're understanding. We strive to live by the commandments of God. Everything that much of this world is not trying to do. You know, God has called us to come out of this world, to begin to live by every word of God, so that God can then use us in the coming kingdom of God to create a totally different culture on this earth. Acts chapter 3, verses 17, 18, and 19. There is coming a restitution of all things where the values in the Bible are going to be restored to everyone. This is our calling, brethren, this is our mission. This is the purpose of being called today that the world has lost sight of. We are to cry aloud and spare not and to show this world why they're having the problems. We have a job to do, preaching about the coming kingdom of God and the fact that Jesus Christ came as the Savior of mankind. And He's called us to a job and to a purpose to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered. We've got an incredible and exciting purpose and mission that most of the churches of this world have lost sight of. God loves you. Have a nice day. Very different from the calling that God has given to us. So, brethren, as we see the challenges facing Christians today, and we see what's coming down the road, and it may be not too distant future. Will you have the courage to continue to endure to the end as Christians as we look around and see Christianity crumbling around us? Let's hang on to that mission. Let's hold on to that purpose. Let's catch that vision so that we can be Christians in a world that really needs our light 
and example.